0: <coughs> this Health System, Broadlands Medical Center.
1: Hi, this is Angela Rosa. Um, I'm down at Cleveland Clinic in
0: HR.
2: Hi, everyone. This is Leslie Davis with Immigration Solutions. I'm going to wait just a minute for a few more people to log on. We've got quite a sizable uh, audience today. And also I'm going to ask if we would like to actually interact with you at the end through Q&A, we think it's valuable. I'm going to ask you to mute your phones today so that we can kind of go into presentation mode. You can do that by pressing star 6. And we'll certainly remind you when we get to the end of the call for open Q&A that you can unmute by doing the same thing, pressing star 6. So we'll wait just a minute see if anyone else is going to log on before we get started. Hi, this is Adrienne Paul,
0: Children's Rehab HR.
2: Hi, Adrienne. This is Leslie Davis. We're actually just getting started. I'm Hi. Getting yep, arrested. I've been here. Hi. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Um, you might want to mute your phone by pressing star six. Shut up, another word. <laughs> um, yeah, star six. And that way, you know, if you've got others gathered, you can actually interact with them and it doesn't disturb any of us on the line. And it also gives us an opportunity at the end to have open Q&A and, and actually interact live with, uh, with all of you who have called in. We're, we're presuming that there will be questions. <laughs> um, so we'll get started here. Uh, welcome and thank you for putting us on your calendar today. Um, our topic... And uh, actually, uh, this is a part of our monthly telephone conference series. We're going to do this every month. Um, uh, Our topic today is the new I-9 form that was rolled out um, and made available uh, April 3rd, just a couple of weeks ago. And we'll discuss today the new form. We'll also take the opportunity to just kind of do an overview, really, of the laws and regulations that govern I-9s uh, will also take the opportunity to touch upon uh, document requirements, document examination, detention, discrimination and penalties attached to this entire process, and some of the pros and cons about electronic storage and E-Verify and uh, that, uh, that type of uh, I-9 management. Um, In our invitation, we had a link to the new I-9 form. We also provided uh, to you a link to uh, actually a fairly good um, employer uh, handbook put out by immigration. That, too, is new and has been updated. These might be good to bookmark if uh, you're actually the one on the phone responsible for I-9 management. These are good, quick uh, desk uh, reference sources. Um, You might want to have the I-9 up on the screen during our our conference or print it out and uh, actually take notes uh, in that way on the forum. I also want you to know that in the employer handbook, there are some terrific examples of what these documents look like. Certain industries. Hello? Okay. You might want to mute your phone if you're just entering the conference by pressing star six. Thank you so much. Um, Certain industries see particular documents and, you know, aren't exposed to others. And in the employer manual that we have a link to, uh, you can see actually examples of of the documents that we're going to be referencing today and also examples as to how to really fill the form out as well. So uh, these these are good tools that we wanted you to be able to access. So, before we actually get started, just to kind of set the tone for the call today, um, you know, we, we deal in uh, immigration law, uh, basically our point of contact with our clients, our, our HR professionals. And, you know, so much in the past we have heard, gee, you know, can't we just simply follow the instructions on the form and kind of just look at the documents that are presented and, you know, isn't this all, all uh, uh, we need to do? Why are we supposed to be immigration cops? Well, in a sense, the current expectation from the government today, including immigration and customs enforcement, commonly referred to as ICE, is just that, that that they have taken the position that it is the employers who really are to kind of, quote-unquote, police the workforce today. And our president, uh, Obama, has also recently made that statement, that he is not so much going after undocumented aliens anymore, but is really holding responsible the employers that are, that are employing them. And uh, so uh, 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 this is another reason, really, today why we're having this call, because employers uh, quite frequently, and we do report upon this in our newsletter, Uh, across the country are facing sanctions and monetary penalties and very unpleasant things like the heads of HR, uh, you know, being handcuffed and escorted out the door. Um, Almost a year ago today, Julie Myers, who was the former assistant for ICE, made this statement, and this is actually a quote that I'm going to read to you. The law is clear. Employers have an affirmative obligation to verify that their employees are legally able to work in the U.S.A. Failure to do so leaves an employer open to enforcement action, and ICE is not at all reluctant to enforce the law. Well, that's a pretty a pretty strong statement. So it is indeed important to learn how to do I-9s, to have trained and educated people Uh, in your facility to manage this process that know how to update the I-9s and we also highly recommend that you schedule um, an audit of your I-9s we like to actually refer to it as a pre-audit audit audit. in other words before somebody knocks on your door and actually tells you that they're auditing your I-9s compliance issues can be a little confusing We, we realize that um, and, and it does require advanced planning, but it is our position that, um, that employers need today in this climate, in this business climate that we're in, to take a closer look at what's at stake if they don't um, have policies and procedures in place for the management of their I-9s. Um, not enough compliance is just a matter of exposing your company to fines. Um And it's really a matter of making sure that the company management and HR professional who's in charge of this doesn't end up complicit in any problem. Our experience in I-9 management is is really no matter how large or small a company is, the business, uh, um, rather, I-9 mistakes happen. This is common. You're not expected to be an expert. But, you know, again, with proper training, uh, you know, the bar uh, uh, is raised higher and and greater accuracy can be brought to the table concerning how you're managing this. Now, we understand that, that, you know, I-9s are not maybe at the top of your agenda all the time uh, in your day-to-day dealings um, um, concerning your job. But we do recommend that employer compliance plans are put into... Uh, position and um, that your policies and procedures uh, should be uh, reviewed and addressed uh, in a very simple plan um, as to how you want to manage your I-9s. And this is something that we do all the time for our clients. And we're certainly available to work with you, um, you know, uh, even after this call if you have any questions that you'd like to address offline or your Feeling that maybe it's time that uh, that your place of employment put uh, something down on paper as to how you're going to manage, um, you know, the handling of your I-9s. We're certainly available to assist you with that. If you haven't been on our website, we have a very uh, thorough uh, employer compliance section uh, that is broken down, you know, very specifically into all of the compliance areas, and we also have up there a list of our services and, and the solutions that we can bring to the table so uh, at this point I'd like to um, uh, introduce our two panelists today uh, we have attorney Tom Joy who is a licensed immigration attorney he's been practicing for some 30 years and I think that Tom even remembers when the I-9 form was actually introduced and implemented um, Tom is the head of our business unit here at Immigration Solutions and is also responsible for the compliance uh, end of our practice. Um, Tom will be joined today by Brandon Meyer. Brandon <laughs> is a young, very bright uh, associate affiliated with Immigration Solutions. And the two of them will take turns back and forth addressing various topics. And they will they will introduce their topic uh, briefly before they uh, start so that you'll sort of know where we're going with the call. Um, I'd like to also add that we're recording the call and it will be uploaded on our web. Hello?
3: Hello? Hello?
1: (laughs) Hello? When I logged in, it asked you State your name and the company that you with. Every time somebody
4: logs in, is is everybody still there? Yes. Yeah. All right. I think Leslie <laughs> I think Leslie Davis lost contact. She will be back. Uh, this is Tom Joy, the attorney. I am here. Uh, let's just hold on and wait for Leslie to log back in, okay? All right. And if I could ask you Again, to mute your phones, I'm hearing several background conversations. It's star six. And uh, when you have questions later, we can unmute and listen to your questions. Thank you.
2: I'm so sorry. Something happened. This is Leslie. I got cut off.
4: Uh, Leslie, Leslie, Tom Joy, I came on the line and took over for you while you were gone, and... Oh,
2: thank you. Thank you. Something happened, and I just went blank. So, Tom, uh, take it away. Yes. Good. Uh,
4: all right. Thank you, Leslie. Hmm? Uh, well, technology is great, but only one part, so which is what I always say, so we'll, we'll, do, our, we'll do our best. Uh, as Leslie indicated, uh, I've been practicing immigration law for over 30 years, and, yes, I am old enough to remember that <laughs> when, when the I-9 form was created, uh, 1986, I'd been practicing immigration law for about nine years at that time, uh, 1986, there was a huge, huge debate, very similar, you'll find out, to what's going on today, but on a bigger scale today. Back in 1986, believe it or not, there were only about 3 million illegal or undocumented aliens in the united states uh... these days estimates are upwards of twenty million and uh... the government was looking for a way to to uh... solve that problem even even uh... twenty-some years ago they came up with an amnesty program for people who had established roots in the u.s. and were not criminals and who spoke english um, and uh... they, they legalized uh, over a million people under that amnesty program but as part of that they created the I-9 employment verification system to, quote, close the back door to illegal immigration. It had been determined that employment or jobs was the draw for uh, <laughs> undocumented aliens to come to the United States. So if they legalized the ones who had established roots more than five years in the U.S. and then uh, closed the back door by coming down hard on employers who hired and continue to employ undocumented workers, uh, they thought they would solve the problem. Uh, That was a wonderful idea, uh, in theory. It has not worked, obviously, because one of the main problems is the government has been unable to throw the resources at the problem that they needed for enforcement. However, today, 2009, the debate is back on. 20 million undocumented aliens or more in the U.S. A bad economy, undocumented aliens taking jobs away from Americans. It's inviting more and more enforcement activities. So we're looking we're looking at 1986 all over again, but on a bigger scale. Now, what does um, what does the law require? Well, uh, three things basically. Uh, in simple terms, number one. You as an employer must verify the identification and the work authorization of all of your employees. Um, Second, you need to retain your I-9s for a certain period of time and in a certain way. And we'll talk about these issues in more detail in a moment. And third, you must not discriminate in the process. I want to get your attention, and if this doesn't get your attention, nothing will. Consequences of failure to comply. Uh, Civil penalties for a first offense, and these are per illegal alien or undocumented alien. First offense ranges from $375 to $3,200 per alien. Second offense, $3,200 to $6,500 per alien. Uh, subsequent offenses, $4,300 to $11,000 per alien. Um, Paperwork violations. Even if you have no undocumented workers, no illegal workers, even if everybody you hire an employee is an American citizen, for example, if you fail to comply and fill out and complete, retain, and make available your I-9 forms for audits, you can be charged with paperwork violations, we call them. And they range from $110 to $1,100 per violation. Um, Beyond that, uh, certain cases have made the news recently. Uh, Criminal offenses, if it's established that there's a pattern and practice of hiring uh, undocumented workers, there, there can be a penalty of $3,000 per alien and or six months in jail. Now, here's the attention getter. Who goes to jail? It's a company, obviously. Who, who's, who in the company is going to be? You can't send a company to jail. Uh, who do they send? They send executives and HR people who are in on the pattern and practice. And there's, I've seen that in a number of cases recently, and the government is very, very serious about that. Um, I want to mention two things. I mentioned ranges of fines uh, for first, second, and subsequent violations and paperwork violations. Uh, the government takes into consideration various factors. The size of your company, most importantly, your good faith or lack of good faith in trying to comply with the I-9 practice. It's a very complex uh, process, and the government does recognize good faith attempts to comply with an almost impossible job, and your past history, Do you have a past history of violations. Um, A good faith defense will probably uh, stand up against charges unless you have actual knowledge of the illegal status of the person hired uh... so it's very important uh... that you make a good faith effort to comply and the government does recognize and enforce that on this topic i want to leave you with a real life example and you will all recognize the name of the company when i tell you at the end but uh... this really happened and i was involved in it indirectly uh... and uh... uh, One day, uh, an immigration officer showed up at the door of one of my clients, a Fortune 500 uh, high-tech company here in California, Uh, came in and served a three-day notice to produce all I-9s and employment records and various other things for inspection. Um, Three days was not enough because we had over 2,000 employees and 2,000 I-9s and records to, to get together. This was back in the days uh, before computers, uh, or in the early days of computers. So it was it was not like we could press a button and produce it uh, on a one-day basis. I asked for two weeks extension. They gave it to me. Um, I, I then went through every I-9 with the staff. We blue-penciled uh, corrections. We didn't white out things. We didn't... Uh, Uh, redo things. We blue-penciled, meaning we took a different color ink and made any corrections that we noticed, such as a form wasn't signed or dated properly or a box wasn't filled in. Uh, We showed our good faith. We were totally honest, and we produced those records. The inspector came, picked them up, viewed the originals, kept the copies, and then disappeared for four months. Uh, I hadn't heard anything for four months, so I called her up, and she said, well, I, I, um, I, I, I don't see any problems with your case. Uh, in, in fact, a company this size, I've, I've never seen such a good job on I-9s. It, I, I'm going to pat myself on the back, so excuse me, but I had trained these, this client over the years, so I expected this result. But she said an interesting thing uh, at that point. She said, um, I'm not going to get back to you. There's really nothing here. And besides, I've been pulled off this case and assigned to a, another case and it was disneyland here in southern california we all know disneyland and you know the you know the happiest place on earth but the problem was they had audited disneyland and even though they only found four illegal workers four only four disneyland was fined four hundred thousand dollars It was eventually settled at $250,000. But you may ask, with only four undocumented workers, why $400,000? Paperwork violations. Failure to do the I-9 process in good faith or at all. I leave you with that to think about. Leslie, we'll move on to the next topic now, I think. Uh, is is Leslie gone again? Okay. Well, thank you, Tom. This is Brandon Myers. Um,
5: um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, yes, I'm going to you. talk about completing the I-9 form, basically what does the employee and employer need to do to be in compliance. First of all, the employee must complete Section 1 of the I-9 form no later than the time employment begins. <coughs> Section 1 will ask the employee for personal data, such as their name, date of birth, address, immigration status, essentially whether or not they're a U.S. citizen, permanent resident, or non-immigrant authorized to work in the United States, and their social security number. Please note that provision of the social security number is optional unless the employer participates in the e-verify program, which is something that I'll touch on later in this call. After filling out the I-9, the employee is then obligated to produce, for inspection by the company, their identity and employment authorization documents within three days of hire. Now, if the employee fails to do so within three days, then the company can terminate that employee at that point in time. Once the employee does um, provide their identity and employment authorization documents, they then also sign a certification. It's It's in... bold black letters on the form, Section 1, stating that they're aware that federal law provides for imprisonment and or fines for producing false statements or documents during the I-9 verification. Now, there are three broad exceptions for completing, for when someone does not have to complete the I-9. The first exception is uh, independent contractors do not need to complete the I-9. However, that's a, it does, does, does not mean that the employer can classify employees as independent contractors for the purpose of abating the I-9 requirements. Um, another exception is when employees are, are being hired just to work for three days or less, at that time they have to present um, their documents at the time of hire. And the third general exception deals with, with staffing agencies. Um, staffing agencies, it's their obligation to have the employees submit the I-9, not not the company that the workers are being contracted to. However, if the the contracted company has constructive knowledge of I-9 violations by the staffing agency, and and the company is aware of this, then they too could be subject to sanctions and penalties in the in the in the event that this happens. Now, what type of documents does the employee need to provide? Well, Tom will discuss that in the next section. But basically, the employee must provide either one document from so-called list A of the list of acceptable documents that USCIS has put out, or one document from list B and one document from list C. And all documents presented by the employee must be originals. And in some circumstances, a receipt notice issued by USCIS is acceptable to show work authorization. And and these circumstances include um, H-1B change of employer provisions of the uh, American Competitiveness in the 21st Century Act, if the employee um, has been timely filed an extension to their currently held non-immigrant status, such as for any employees on E-Visas, H-1Bs, L-1s, O-1s, TNs, and also the so-called STEM EAD card. Now, keep in mind that a receipt notice is not acceptable as continuing work authorization for all other types of EAD extensions. And in that circumstance, if the new EAD is not issued before the underlying EAD card expires, that employee must be terminated until the new EAD is issued unless that employee has a backup form of work authorization. Now for employees that are presenting a receipt, they must present a receipt within three days and therefore, thereafter present proof of new work authorization within 90 days of the expiration date of their underlying status. However, if USCIS has not acted upon this extension request within 90 days, which is quite typical, um, that employee's work authorization is extended to a total of 240 days while this extension remains pending. So that's a brief overview of what the employee must do. Now I'm going to move on to talk about the employer's obligations. The employers must complete Section 2 of the I-9 form by examining the identity and employment authorization documents presented by the employee. However, the employer cannot specify the types of documents it will accept from the list of documents uh, provided by USCIS. That choice is entirely the employee's. Now, in Section 2, the employer must record the title of the document presented be it a U.S. passport, birth certificate, or H-1B approval notice. Um, sorry, I apologize for my fax machine in the background. I hope that's not too obnoxious. Um, secondly, they must list the issuing authority of the document, be it USCIS, Social Security uh, Administration, or Department of Motor Vehicles, the document number, the expiration date, if any, and the date that employment begins. Now, here's um, what Tom was talking about before. Um, if... After reviewing the employee's documents, the employer must sign a data certification attesting under penalty of perjury that the documents presented, quote, appear to be genuine. Now, USCIS recognizes that the employer need not necessarily be an expert in um, what, what constitutes about a, you know, a fake versus a genuine document, but I mean, a little common sense. Um, in this realm is important. The Social Security is spelled wrong on the Social Security card, and that obviously calls into question the genuine nature of the document. Um, employees providing work authorization documents, such as an H-1B approval notice, that have an expiration date, these employees must be re-verified on or before the expiration date of that underlying document. And with that, I'll move on to um, the situation when employee... Must, must have their I-9 form updated or the employee themselves must be re-verified. Um, some reasons for re-verifying an employee or having them complete an I-9, such as if the employee name changes, either through marriage, divorce, or some other situation, or if the, the person's non-immigrant work status has been extended. Now, USCIS says that, the, that giving the employer the option when reverifying to either use Section 3 of the existing I-9 form or have the employee complete a brand new I-9. However, from a practical standpoint, most I-9 reverifications will require the completion of the new I-9 form because it's stipulated in the rules that um, you can only use Section 3 of the existing form if the initial verification was on the version of the I-9 form dated February 2, 2009, which was the one that was actually released, um, as Tom mentioned, on April 3 of this year. And this, this, this version date can be found in the lower right-hand corner of the I-9 form. Thus, if the initial verification was on a form prior to 2209, then any the subsequent re-verification must requires the use of the new form. And like the initial I-9 verification, the employer cannot specify which documents it prefers from its employees. I also wish to briefly touch upon um, what to do in a merger and acquisition situation. In an M&A situation, the successor company may choose whether or not it wants to re-verify employees that were acquired along with the company. So, but if the the successor company decides to re-verify even one employee, then it must re all the company's employees, no exceptions. But if the re-verification does not take place, not only has the successor company bought the company and, and its employees, but it's also purchased the liability for any errors and omissions in that acquired company's I-9s. So it's something to think about in an M&A situation. Do you want to, um, you know, have the added burden of re-verifying X number of employees, along with everything else that goes in the merger and acquisition, or do you want to take the chance that um, the company you just bought did everything properly? Either way, it's important to decide early on in the M&A process whether or not you want to assume the company's existing I-9s. And with that, um, I'm going to allow Tom to discuss document requirements and what you need to do to examine them. So
4: on to you, Tom. Okay. Thank you, Brandon. Um The uh, USCIS has produced a very uh, useful uh, handbook. It's the Form M-274 Handbook for Employers. We've provided a link to that uh, on your invitation with the call-in number uh, today. That's the easiest place to find it. It's 65 pages long. Uh, You may wish to print it out and keep it on your desk. It's not that long, but very, very useful. On, uh, On page 45... Uh, there starts uh, uh, examples of various documents from List A, List B, and List C, which are uh, listed in the uh, instructions to the I-9 form. Now, the requirement is the employer must view either one document from List A, and List A establishes both identification and employment authorization. So one document establishes both ID and employment authorization, the list A document. Alternatively, an employer must view one document from list C, uh, list B, I'm sorry, which establishes identity, plus one document from list C, which establishes employment authorization. Now, in list A, uh, the big ones are U.S. passport or U.S. passport card. Uh, you will note, what's a U.S. passport card? Well, I have yet to see one, and I'm in the business. But they are new. They just started issuing them. It's, it, it looks like a, um, a green card. Uh, it, uh, it's a wallet-sized card with a picture on it, and it can be used in lieu of a U.S. passport for certain travel. Unusual that you'll see one, but you more likely see a passport itself. Uh, more likely you will see a green card or what is currently called a permanent resident card or what one version is called the alien registration receipt card. Now, there are two and only two versions, official versions, of green cards out there at this time. Um, They're both listed uh, in in the handbook uh, starting at page 45. Uh, I, will, I want to note that the third version that existed prior to these uh, does not exist anymore, and that was the old green one. Uh, it was somewhat green. It was more of blue or greenish-blue, and it had a black-and-white photograph on it. It was laminated. The lamination didn't last more than a year or two, and it was usually falling apart, and it was easily counterfeited. So back in 1989, uh, the government started calling all those in, replaced them with uh, the current version. But there's another version out there. The current version, I'll back up a minute, the current version of the green card has an expiration date on it. It's a 10-year expiration date. And at the end of that 10 years, the person's legal status does not expire. The card or evidence of the legal status merely expires. They need to pay a fee and go get a new card. Um, You are not required to um, re-verify after 10 years if they show you one of those 10-year green cards. However, there's another green card out there. looks the same, but it expires after two years. That's a situation where the, the, the foreign national has married a U.S. citizen, the marriage was less than two years old when when he or she got the green card. They're given a two-year conditional green card. It expires after two years. You are required to re-verify that because it is an expiration date of the legal status, not just the card. Um, a third, another version of the card that is out there that is shown in your handbook is the version of the card that was issued between 1978, I believe. And 1989, when they called in all the old green cards, that version does not does not have an expiration date on it. There's an example in your handbook, and uh, so so if you're looking for an expiration date, you will not see it on those older cards. But they are still legal. Check your handbook for the example. Um, now, uh, I want to point out your most common combination of documents that you will see from list B and C. Uh, it, it's unusual that somebody has a list A document, but, but uh, oftentimes they do. Most commonly, you will see a list B, establishing identity, and a list C, document, <coughs> establishing work authorization. Typically, you will see a driver's license uh, from one of the 50 states, establishing ID, and uh, in combination with a Social Security card uh, establishing work authorization. Um, The Social Security card uh, will either be what I call a clean Social Security card with no restrictions on it. Those are the old, 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 old ones. I have one that I got when I was 12 years old. It just has my name and my number on it. About 1981, they started issuing a version that said not valid for employment. Uh, You cannot accept one of those. They were issued to open a bank account and various other things, get a driver's license back starting in 1981. The current version of the Social Security card that is issued that you'll most likely see these days is a Social Security card that says on it uh, valid for employment. Only when accompanied by um, immigration authorization document or something like that, uh, and that is that is a valid um, a valid social security card. Uh, so the most common combination you're going to see is a list B driver's license and a list C social security card. Uh, these two documents, uh, just coincidentally, are the most easily counterfeited. Um, However, as uh, Brandon mentioned, you're not in the forensics business, and you're not expected to be. If it appears to be reasonably valid on its face, uh, then then, uh, you are required to accept it, and if you don't, you run the risk of uh, being charged with discrimination. Um, Just as Brandon mentioned, a little common sense. uh, The example that he mentioned, I actually saw once the word Social Security was misspelled on the card. Um years ago I saw a fake green card where all the numbers were in sequential order. the per, uh, the person's A number was a one two, three, four five six seven eight nine. Uh, I thought to myself, what are the odds of that? <laughs> but uh, it turned out to be fake. Uh, and my other favorite was uh, a green card that indicated the person had gotten his green card through Amnesty, which was in 1986 to 1989. And, uh, and yet it said temporary resident since 1946. So um, those, those are some common sense things to look out for. Uh, look at your handbook. When in doubt, you can, you can give, uh, give us a call and, and uh, we can look at it for you. I do this quite often. Um, but that, that takes care of the list, the examples. Study the, the examples in the handbook closely. If it doesn't look like those, and that is a good list. I'm, I'm familiar with all those documents. That is a very good up-to-date list at the moment. Um, and if it looks different, you may have an issue. You may be notice that you have an undocumented worker. Uh, Brandon, you want to take the next topic? Yeah, thanks, Tom.
5: I'm going to briefly touch upon document retention requirements. Um, the, the first issue I'd like to discuss is whether or not um, you wish to make make and retain photocopies of the identity and employment authorization documents that an employee provides. This is the employer's option. They can decide whether or not they want to do this. However, if the employer decides to photocopy and retain supporting documents, it must do so for all new employees, otherwise run the risk of a a charge of discrimination. Um, Either way, photocopying and retaining supporting documents may be a good policy to implement since if if a company is operating their I-9 program in good faith, photocopying these documents may strengthen the company's defense in the event of an I-9 audit. But regardless of whether or not a company decides to photocopy and retain supporting documents, the company must obviously retain the original I-9 form that was completed by the employee and the employer. Now, the I-9 itself and any supporting documentation must be retained for three years after the date of hire or one year after employment is terminated, whichever is later. So you could be in a situation where you could be re- have to retain someone's I-9 documents for several years.
2: I you.
5: I'm sorry? Oh, sorry. Okay. It is important either way to purge your I-9 files once you are legally able to do so. Um, if there has been problems in the past with your company's I-9 compliance, why keep around old I-9s that you don't have to that could actually harm your company in the event of an I-9? So we certainly recommend and we're um, able to help purge I-9s once you're legally able to do so. And we also recommend that the company keeps separate its I-9 files for active and inactive employees and otherwise keep a log of expirations in a database or a spreadsheet or whatever works best for you to help aid in the purge of these old files. Right. Now, generally speaking, a company can retain their I-9s in, in one of three forms, either paper, electronically, or in microform. Now, if you, a company chooses to retain the I-9s in paper form, these either can be retained on-site or off-site, But the company must be able to present these I-9s for inspection within three days if requested by a relevant government agency, such as ICE or the Department of Labor. Companies have been able to store their I-9s electronically since since 2005, and more companies are moving in this direction toward electronic completion and electronic storage. And there's lots of commercially available internet-based systems that do this, and some companies that use these find it's very helpful if they're, if they're in a large company or if they have numerous locations. It helps manage the program better and, and increases compliance. Some of these systems can also be integrated with e-verifying and with the company's payroll systems, and they also help reduce errors in completing the I-9s. Uh, so if the employer or employee tries to fill out something incorrectly, A lot of these programs will alert them to that fact and help with the correction. Now, these electronic systems are far from perfect. Um, There's security issues. What if someone can hack in and and steal your employees' identity information? That does happen. Um, What if the software company goes out of business? Um, What do you do in that situation? So there's a lot to think about if you're doing electronic storage, but that does seem to be the wave of the future. Now, also, a company can store their I-9s in microform, either in microfilm or microfiche. Um, The thing to keep in mind with this is that the film and the equipment and the images that they produce must be able to be preserved for a long period of time. And if the equipment degrades or these microfiche and and microfilm are lost or otherwise destroyed, then that could be problematic in an audit situation. So that's, that's the, the general takeaway. Um, keep keep your documents for either three years after data hire or up to one year after um, data termination, whichever is later. And the company can choose either paper, electronic, or microform. And with that, I'll let Tom move on to the real fun stuff, um, employment <laughs> discrimination and the penalties thereof. On to thank
4: you, Tom. All right. Uh, thank you, Brandon. Um, Discrimina- employment discrimination is a legal field that is a legal field all by itself, uh, separate and apart from uh, immigration issues. However, uh, they overlap, and I'm going to discuss immigration consequences. There's much, much, much more to this, and your labor and employment law attorneys can can certainly uh, tell you all about it. But as it applies to immigration practices, I-9 practices. Um, there are four prohibitions. You cannot discriminate based on citizenship and immigration status. You cannot discriminate based on national origin. Uh, you cannot um, discriminate uh, or use uh, unfair document practices that discriminate. I'll get into that in a minute. And lastly, you, you cannot retaliate. Uh, let's look uh, at each one of these. Unfair document practices. It says right on the face of the form you cannot require more or different documents uh, than, than the law requires. Um, I believe uh, in looking at the form, at the very top in bold, uh, bold letters, anti-discrimination notice it is illegal to discriminate against work authorized individuals Employers cannot specify which documents they will accept from from the employee. That means uh, you can't uh, require a list A document when they're presenting a B and a C. For example, the refusal to hire an individual because the documents have a future expiration date may also constitute illegal discrimination. So you cannot require more documents if they present a satisfactory List A document, that's all you can require. If they present satisfactory B and C, that's all you can require. Uh, You cannot require certain documents. You cannot say everybody must present a U.S. passport or everybody must present a, a Social Security card and a driver's license. Uh, The employee, as Brandon said, has the option of producing whichever one they have that meets the law. You cannot reject reasonably appearing documents. If they appear reasonable on their face, uh, you have a good faith defense. And uh, lastly, you cannot treat certain groups uh, differently from each other. Let's, uh, let's discuss that. Uh, be, be aware of the, um, of the uh, demographics of your workforce. If you're in manufacturing or, or uh, other blue-collar uh, type work, you're typically going to see a driver's license and a Social Security card or a green card from List A. Uh, if you're in the white-collar business, you may see other documents, a U.S. passport um, and, and other combinations of documents. So just be, be aware and be sensitive uh, to your the demographics of your workforce. Uh, treat everybody the same. Don't single people out. Don't single groups out because they look different, they talk different, or anything like that. Um, the government has uh, a special... Uh, office that handles discrimination claims and i'll warn you right now these people don't fool around they are very very serious about what they do it's the office of special counsel for immigration um, and related unfair employment practices in the civil rights division of the department of justice in washington dc uh, there are civil penalties Civil fines, very similar to the uh, I-9 violations, uh, document violations, hiring violations, I discussed earlier, in the thousands of dollars, and there have been verdicts in the many, many, many thousands of dollars against companies for discrimination. So I'll leave you with this thought: you have a you have a dilemma. You have to be careful to comply with the I-9 laws, but you cannot be too careful because you may run afoul of the discrimination laws. So it's a balancing act. What's enough to meet the I-9 immigration laws, but what is too much that may uh, open you up to a discrimination claim? It's it's a tough call. We've tried to give you some guidance on it today, and I hope, uh, hope it's been helpful. Um, and I'll pass the uh, conference on to Brandon now to discuss... Uh, one of my favorite topics that's not across the board yet, but I expect will be, E-Verify.
5: Thank you, Tom. Uh, yeah, we talk about E-Verify. E-Verify is currently a voluntary program that allows employers to verify the employment authorization of their new employees. There are two general um, types of employers that are required to participate in the E-Verify program, such as certain federal contractors although this is their, participa- their mandatory participation has been delayed on several occasions and looks like it's uh, being delayed again this time until June 30th, 2009. But we'll wait and see. It's been a subject of litigation and a lot of controversy. Um, also, companies that wish to participa- participate in the STEM EAD program, in order to do so, they must participate in eVerify. Now, how does E-Verify work or purport to work? e supposedly links to several federal government databases that, um, that supposedly can provide a confirmation of whether or not your employee has authorization to work in the United States. If something is amiss during this initial search, the system issues what's called a, quote, tentative non-confirmation of work authorized status. and and enumerate steps that both the employer and employee must take to address whatever this issue that the system has flagged. And if this issue is not addressed timely, then a final non-confirmation is issued. Um, If a company enrolls in the E-Verify program, as I said before, currently voluntary, then they must use E-Verify for all new employees, no exceptions. However, E-Verify cannot be used to pre-screen prospective employees. That goes into the uh, discrimination angle that Tom was talking about previously. As it stands right now, E-Verify is set to expire on September 30th of this year, unless it's extended by Congress. The enrollment in the program is currently around 1% of all U.S. employers despite heavy promotion of the e-verify program, so there's no uh, mass rush to sign up. The error rate in the the system is currently uh, publicized at around 5%, although many people think that the true rate of error is significantly higher. Now, this is one of the reasons that people do not like the e-verify program and always point to the error rate is, you know, you could be in a situation where, Individuals born in the United States, maybe have never even been outside the United States, um, that there's some government database somewhere where there's an error in the system, and now they're prevented from working until they're able to resolve whatever that problem is. Um, Some observers, such as Tom, uh, believe that um, that there will be a permanent extension of this program with mandatory participation at some point, although if this is the case, that there will be significant well, expected to have significant resistance from business groups and civil libertarians. Um, although most likely what will happen is that permanent extension of e verify will be included as part of a compromise in any any new comprehensive immigration reform program that may come sometime this fall, next year, whenever it does arrive. I mean it's been talked about for several years now. There seems to be new infinite um, the Obama administration to push this forward. If so, if it does become a reality, eVerify is likely to be a part of that bargain. So that's that's all I really want to talk about with the, the eVerify program. Um, we'll see if it's if it's renewed beyond September 30th. And with that, I'd like to send it back to Leslie to uh, moderate the Q&A session.
2: Great, thank you so much, Brandon and Tom. I mean, they have shared some very valuable information with all of you today. And now it's kind of your turn. We like to uh, always open up for Q&A and actually interact with our our callers in a live way. So you might want to unmute your phone by pressing star six and and step right up to the microphone, as they say. We're here to uh, give about 15 minutes for Q&A.
6: Leslie, hi. This is Sybil Falcon from the Hierarchy. Hi, Sybil. How are you today? I'm great. Thank Good, you. Thank you. Um, I have a couple of questions and it was just out of my curiosity. Mm-hmm. After HR receives and processes the I9, um is it verified by the government if you're not utilizing E-verify?
2: Brandon, you want to take that cuz you just covered that. Mm-hmm. No, only in the if if you do not uh, use E-verify and you, then
5: the only time that anyone comes to check up on it is in the event of an audit by uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Department of Labor, or the Office of Special Counsel. So the I-9 is completed. It goes into either your paper file, electronic file, until some point that someone wants to see it.
2: And we hope that nobody ever wants
6: to see it. The hiring managers, of course, wanted to wring my neck when I told them all that they had to have a class on it. Um, what what, the challenge that we've had is with the hiring managers at a different site than the employee, mm. um, you know, it's hard to get that information. What, what suggestions do you have, you know, for that? Because right now what we have to do is have the manager actually go to the site where the employee is, and that's not really cost-effective.
2: Are your sites all sort of uh, relatively local to one another, or are no, they actually different states, Sylvia? Yeah,
6: they're they're different states.
2: Well, Brandon, you touched upon the pros and cons of electronic systems. Have you explored? Yeah, that might be a yeah yeah that might be a situation
5: that if you're not otherwise already so that you you may wish to look into one of these electronic storage systems, and that way. Um, you can manage the process centrally, or at least check up on the local offices to see if they're doing it correctly.
6: Are you um, to
5: And okay. most of these systems are internet-based, so you know anyone with the proper um, URL or login could, in, in in theory, use them, and and then subsequently check up on them. And that's something an important point that you do raise is that a lot of times, if there are I nine compliance issues. They're not necessarily at the head office. They're at the um, off-site locations where, you know, maybe the the oversight by virtue of distance doesn't quite reach.
2: And also, too, Sylvia, another uh, way of maybe looking at this is to absolutely, if if you have not already, identify a particular person at each location, train them. And we do perform training on-site and off-site. Uh, train them and only permit that person to do I nines. I mean, this is would, where you have to get organized yeah, internally.
6: Yeah, that would mean obtaining another um, um, access code or access uh, for for that individual.
2: That's true. Mm-hmm. hmm But it certainly could solve your problem in as much as it would help tighten up the whole process. Well, that's what we've had to do now.
6: Yeah. You know, let them use the manager's ID. Mhm. No, it's,
2: it's very um, important it's that I think it's and it's very important that particular people be charged with this. That you try and keep a group of people that are trained, that that, that continue to access information as it's revised and and keep them knowledgeable. Mm-hmm.
3: I think that eVerify verify does not allow you to use another person's ID. Yeah,
6: I know. <laughs> I, I, I know. Yeah, yeah, but we haven't had <coughs> much of a choice, you know, yeah. other than having the manager actually, you know, go to that site.
2: Have you explored other electronic systems, Sylvia, that might be a little more user-friendly for you? Well, yeah, the only other... Um,
6: a uh, process that we could utilize is the manual process with the paper,
2: mm-hmm.
6: you know, the old oh. format. Okay. I mean, that's, I, we prefer that versus the e-verify because of uh, the possibility of error, you know, as well as the difficulty of, and the cost effectiveness, you know, that it is costing us to have the managers go there simply to verify documents.
2: Mm-hmm. Do you yeah. have an employer compliance program in place? Uh, yeah, we do. That's good, <clears throat> and that's very smart. And I and we highly recommend that today. It doesn't have to be, you know, a big deal. There are very simple programs that we design for people that, like I said, when when we opened up, that 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 in a very straightforward way address your policies, your regulations, and how you want to go about this. Yes. Yeah. Well, good. Thank you. Thank you for for participating. Anyone else have a question?
0: Do we have any questions?
2: I have
3: a question. Great. Um, Actually, this is a couple of things. Uh, when, When you have a new hire, like we have a lot of people that are far from the work site. You know, they work out of their homes, for instance. How do you? How early? I know they say the start date. The form has to be done within three business days of hire. But how early can you do that? I mean, can you fill it out a week before they start, or must it must it be that three-day window? Does that make sense?
2: Of course it does. Tom, uh, Tom or uh, Brandon, uh, was that your your segment that you did?
4: Uh, Brandon. Yeah,
2: that's that, that's, a, that's a good question you raise. I'm doing it
5: prior to the date of hire. Um, You you cannot do that, and and by doing so, you run the risk of having someone accuse you of doing it to pre-screen the prospective employees.
2: That's a good point. So, yeah,
5: the the regulations are pretty clear. It has to be given to them to complete at the date of hire, and the employee must provide the, the documents within three days of hire.
3: So, and if let's say for some reason it just can't be coordinated to happen that quickly if we attach a memo and explain why that couldn't occur is that helpful
2: well you could, you, could you scan something to an employee if they're off-site or working from their home you could fax that form over to them that on the date of hire
3: it, it's, it's all about coordinating someone looking at the original documents
4: remember oh, that is so Remember, uh, you must. The employer must view original documents, and uh, that I, I think what the caller is saying, the three-day window may not be enough uh, logistically to view original documents from somebody
2: mm-hmm.
4: uh, working uh, from their home in Anchorage, Alaska.
2: Exactly, well, Tom. This is the reality of the business, you know, cycle. The business climate that we're in. People are working from various different job site locations. What would you recommend? Growth. Yeah, what would you recommend here, Tom?
4: Well, um, FedEx has overnight guaranteed delivery service. Uh, uh-huh. That's one approach. Uh, less expensive than sending uh, an HR person out to view it at somebody's home uh, 3,000 miles away. That's right. Uh, secondly, um, if that doesn't work and I I don't know why it couldn't but
3: uh, do you mean send the original documents
4: you'd have to almost company has to has to view the original documents not photocopies
3: I'm sorry I just was trying to understand the FedEx option you're saying like have the employee send their original documents to you
4: that's right and then you send them back
3: okay thanks
4: Uh, but but uh, short of that I mean, remember there there is the uh, there is the good faith defense uh, in in trying to comply with a complex system in good faith. I wouldn't advise someone to 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 do that at the outset. I would advise you to uh, there are ways to view the documents quickly with over, overnight uh, FedEx. Uh, but as a last resort, if it just can't work after every effort to make it work, document it. <coughs> put it in the file, and and, uh, maybe it will hold up as a good faith defense, okay, in the event of an audit.
2: Okay. Thank you. Sure. Anyone else have a question? I do. Okay. Hello.
1: Hi. I was wondering whether we have to give three days for them to get get the uh, original documents to us, or can we require it on the first day?
2: Yeah, I know. This is a big question. We hear this question a lot.
4: And, and the, answer, the answer is the law says they have three days.
2: The
1: law says they have three days. Okay.
5: Thank mm-hmm. you. You're welcome. Can you hear I'm us? Of, yeah, I'm, I'm lots of, but you're, you're just hiring the employee to work for only three days or less. That's the one time when you can require them or you must require them to bring these documents with them when they start.
4: Um, uh, typic- typically, uh, Leslie, um, uh, large companies will have, HR departments will have uh, an orientation program, uh, a formal orientation program, and uh, uh, the invitation to the program will list what documents they need to bring and be prepared to fill out a an nine 9 and... For for the most part, people will bring uh, what they need to that orientation, uh, and and that's generally the date of hire, and everything falls into place. But uh, sometimes, uh, as we all know, if we've been in the business long enough, uh, getting birth certificates or or other official documents, uh, it cannot be done timely. (laughs) Uh, There's no effective timely process to get them quickly. Uh, people lose driver's licenses, they lose passports, uh, you know, try to replace a lost passport, uh, good luck. Um, You know, it, it, um, yeah, three days sometimes is is not enough. So, um, uh, and even, and and certainly requiring them on on the day of orientation, with the exception of what Brandon said, uh, the law gives you a full three days.
0: We have a question on number three. About updating sure. and verification. Um, you had mentioned that uh, when someone was divorced or married, that we would need to re-verify. Is that accurate?
5: Yeah, it's, it's a change of change in name. So yeah, that would be that would be one reason.
0: And they but don't a lot of time, they do not see that as discriminatory towards
5: females. <laughs> uh, possibly could be, um, but I guess that would be a situation. There's no. There would be no expiration date necessarily in the person's married or formerly married name, so that would probably be a scenario where the employee themselves would bring it up to you.
0: I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't
5: know what you're... We do where have... The employee, instead of, like, say, someone's not H-1B expiring May 1st, 2009, um, and, you, and you know that and therefore know to re-verify them based on that expiration date, yeah, if an employee is, is being divorced or married and their name is changing, that's probably something the employee will bring to your – you may not know that naturally. That was something the employee would probably have to bring to your attention.
2: Well, I would and know, if they were to you know, linked into that also would be, you know, maybe they want their paycheck in their new married name because they've opened up bank accounts. So there would be a lot of reasons why people would be forthcoming about that, actually.
4: In, in terms of discrimination then they
2: but they we have to fill out a new form then is what you're saying
0: and with that they have to have their do they have a limited amount of time for that
5: that would that would fall into the into the, the 3 days as as well and they would be i okay. mean this is not a perfect form i mean it took it uh, but,
0: but Tom 3 mentioned days Got married 3 days Probably isn't enough time to get a new Social Security card.
5: No, uh, I mean this is this is far from a perfect form. I mean it took them over 10 years to come up with this this modified form, and, and Tom and Tom Leslie and I sat down and, and and tried to spot the differences between this new brand new form and the old form, and we we only found a, a, a few, and but yeah, there's a lot of situations that fall outside. Um, outside the the boundaries so as Tom was talking about you know you can only do so much in good faith
4: so and and on on the issue of discrimination against females for getting married or divorced and changing their name remember discrimination is only discrimination if if there's no rational basis no rational basis for the distinction other than gender well there is a rational basis for the distinction here uh, for, for the requirement of, of re-verifying because um, the, it's a basic concept. They're changing their name uh, that they're going to be known as. There is, there is a rational basis. Uh, I don't see it as discrimination, gender discrimination at all. So.
0: Yeah, I guess I was thinking if, if they've been employed for 10 years and we verified it 10 years ago that, that it feels unreasonable.
4: Uh, I, I understand what you're saying, but but not everything that looks like discrimination is legally. So. I understand. Okay. If
3: we're aware of someone's name change because of a payroll record, then as an employer that should trigger us that we have to re-verify that person?
4: Uh, yes, that, that would. Brandon, do you agree? I do, yes.
5: And this would bring up something that um, ties into the length of time it took them to, to modify this form, and which was very superficial. We have a one-page form. But yet, there's a 56-page guide on how to fill out a one-page form. So you know it's it's deceptively simple, and you're you're just in this, this brief Q&A. You're raising some of the practical difficulties in in doing so. So you know if, if you run into these practical difficulties, you know we're here to to try to help you work through them.
2: Right. Interesting.
7: Anybody else? Regarding the three-day I-9 rule, yes. If, what is the penalty, or assessment, of fines or fees for anything done outside of the three day
4: Say it was five day Is it per occurrence? Tom, it's, oh, it's I believe not,
2: you heard these things, didn't you?
4: Right, I did, and it's per it's per it's per, uh, uh, it's, it's per uh, a worker. So um, is per worker even for the okay? That, that's right. And and remember, remember, uh, I gave you a range. Uh, that would be what we call a paperwork violation. Oh, and, yeah. And sure. uh, uh, there's a range of, I think, 110 to $1,100 per worker. Uh, and they take various factors of good faith and various things like that into account as to whether they're going to fine you at all or or whether it's going to be 110. dollars on the low end or 1,100 on the high end or somewhere in between. So, uh, look, if you made a good faith effort for in three days and it turned out to be five, you document the effort made, uh, I think you have a good chance of avoiding uh, a fine um, in, in any event uh, under the good faith rule. Okay, I
7: was I thinking would... in terms of uh, perhaps maybe before the date. It came in for a physical. Uh-huh. Okay. Which was prior to the the actual start date, right? And they completed the I nine prior to their start
4: date.
2: Mm.
4: Well, probably probably uh, not going to uh, cause a problem in the long run. However, it, it could lead you leave you open to uh, discrimination for as as Brandon said pre screening. So yeah, pre
7: screening, uh, but would that be based on a rational basis as
4: well? Um. If, if you if you documented it, uh, unlikely that would be pursued as a, as a charge, but, you know, I don't make the call. The OSC, the Office of Special Counsel, would. So. Let uh, me
2: ask a question to the asker. Do you have a compliance program in print that that addresses what your policies are regarding this?
7: Well, I was just throwing out scenarios, what ifs. Okay. But,
1: but I thought... Um, in the manual it talks about if you have an employee orientation date like scheduled 2 weeks in advance if you offer them the job they get it they pass everything we can collect their i9 then and we would be okay it's just after they've been hired where it's an issue well
4: they're 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 hired once they uh, you make the offer and they accept
1: right then we could start the i9 process correct right, without it right. being discrimination
4: that's, correct. You, you've
7: got it. That's correct. Yeah. So, that, so that answers my question.
3: So that could be a verbal even, correct?
7: Yes, they have a start date. They come in perhaps for a physical prior to uh, the start date, of course, and the I-9 is completed at that time. Is that a violation?
1: I don't think, well, from what I've read, it's not a violation. It's just after they've been hired when it becomes a violation. But.
3: So if you accept an offer verbally verbally, And then you, you know, and you are given the I nine, and you do it ahead of time. What's the date you put in there under the certification section? Is it the date they verbally accepted, or the date they started productive work?
4: It it would be. uh, It's phrased on the form as um, as uh, the the date the employee began employment. So whatever whatever their uh, your payroll records indicate as their starting date, that's the date.
3: Okay. Now, if we go back. The whole thing about um, doing the I-9 early based on the the offer acceptance, there could be a discrepancy in those dates.
7: Right. If they're starting work May 1st, that's their official start date, and they actually complete the I-9 on April, just say, 25th. Well, Tom,
2: what what would be the harm in writing in on the form employment the date that the employment actually commences?
4: Uh, there's there really no need to write it in. It's it's what the it's what the form asks for. Employment start. Date. Oh,
2: employment start date. Then that should perhaps be something that you point out to the individual when they're filling the form out. Okay. Yeah. And that would solve that problem. But it's something that has to be on your radar that you bring up. Okay.
4: Thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. But the date on the I-9 has to be the date that they start.
4: It, that, that's the wording. I just read it right off of the form. Uh, employment yeah. start date. Yes.
1: Um, I have a question. If someone calls in and says, we know that um, one of my fellow coworkers has a legal document, what can we do to... Um, investigate that or handle that? If we look at the documents and they look genuine, but someone has called and said, I know for sure that this person has fake documents, can we use E-Verify or can we call and say, call like CIS or ICE and say we know, you know, someone called and said this person has fake documents. Is there anything
5: we can do? I'm going to say no. First, by doing so, if you subject a person post-hire to e-verify, then that that runs straight into a possible discrimination claim. Right. Um, Second of all, how does, you know, when the person presented their documents to the company initially, um, the company certified that they appeared to be genuine. Um, So how does this employee know um, that someone else has, uh, fake documents. I mean I guess that would be the first question. And if you if the employer accepted these documents in good faith as they appear to be genuine, then that should be pretty much the end of the story. Because okay. you can only subject new hires and all new hires to E verify.
3: I have a question on if if you have someone who was in a visa status when they filled out the I nine, but you know that they now have a green card that's been approved um, do you have to wait until it's the proper time to re-verify, or can you step in and re-verify knowing that there's a green card?
2: Good question. Tom, do you want to take that?
4: Uh, Brandon, you covered the re-verify issue. Um,
2: Hello? I mean, if you, if you
5: know, I mean, the, the employee themselves should come to you and say, hey, I'm now a permanent resident and I wish to um, re-verify. If that, has, if that has not occurred, but you know that the employee has a new document um, you should you should still probably wait until the expiration date that's on of, of the documents that they presented when they re, when they initially verified to re-verify them
3: okay thank you
0: i have a question
1: hello yes okay the, um, my question is since we are not allowed to ask the employees or the candidates, what documents to provide, if they are stating on their I-9 that they are um, permanent residents and they're able to work and they provide a document from list A, uh, well actually one from B and C, can we ask them for their their resident card?
4: No, no. We cannot? No. If what they if they
1: don't know, because on the I-9 you have to enter the expiration date, what if they don't know their expiration date? We can't proceed with the I-9.
4: Well, there's no uh, there's no expiration date on a on a green card, uh, other than the two year the two year conditional green card on on marriage cases.
2: Mhm.
4: Now there there but is. how
1: are we to know what card they have?
4: Uh, well, first of all, they 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 check the box at the top that says they're a lawful permanent resident or a green card holder, right? Okay, yeah. And and then they they choose to show you, instead of a list A green card, right? They choose to show you, if I understand your question, a list B driver's license and a list C social security card,
1: right?
4: They've complied with the law. Hmm. But but I I think you're concerned. It's, it's you're, hard
2: to figure. I know.
4: No, you're you're concerned. I know what's bothering you. Yeah. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but your concern is: okay, they showed me a, a B and a C, uh, a driver's license and a social security card, and yet they claim to be they claim to be a green card holder uh, right. in checking the box up above. How do we know how do we know that green card holder part is true?
1: Is for sure, yeah.
4: That, yeah, that's your concern. Uh, that's not your problem as the employer. That's the employee's problem for committing fraud on the form.
5: By extension, I mean, the same principle applies to someone who claims that they're a U.S. citizen yet still provides their, let's say, their their voter
4: registration card and their, um, and right. their Social Security card. Yeah, you, and cannot, so that, you cannot ask them for a U.S. passport. Right. But, exactly. but, re, but remember, the box they check above, it is in, remember, that's in the first section that's done by the employee. That's not your obligation as the employer. If they lie and check a false box, they're committing fraud. You don't have an I-9 obligation for what's in A. You only have an obligation to verify list A or B and C and and, uh, re-verify in Section 3 also. And that's a very
2: important differentiation for you, the employer. Mm -hmm. All right.
3: In this, I have another section. One question: Are are foreign nationals holding visas required to put an A number?
5: No, person gets an A number in certain limited limited circumstances, such as if they're they're either a permanent resident, have filed for permanent resident, or have had a prior encounter with um, the immigration authorities, and, and certain other discrete. Instances they'll get an A number. Someone who who comes in and has an H-1B or an O-1 or a TN, but has not filed for a permanent residency, generally will not have an alien registration number.
3: How about those with EAD cards?
5: Yeah, the brand. E, that's or the, ones, the one you left That's on. not an alien. Re, I mean, it says A number, but that's not that's, that's not the same as an alien registration number. That's just a an identifier that's indigenous to that particular
4: EAD card.
3: Oh, it is. So that's not
0: their A number.
4: Correct. Well, it is. It is an A number. Uh, what? Yeah, you're both. You're both correct. Uh, it is an A number because it has the letter A in front of it. Okay. But. <laughs> but. Uh, it's if I'm not mistaken, it's a 135 million number. Uh yeah. 135 million series, which I understand that there is no there is no physical A file in the government. Uh, uh, system. Whereas, if you have an A number with a lower number for a green card case, there's a physical folder with with the documents in it, and that's a different series of numbers. But uh, if there's if there's an, uh, there is an A number on EAD cards, for example, uh, students who have optional practical training, there is an A number, and I would put that A number, even though it's a different series, it, it's unique to the um, to the EAD. Uh, What Brandon is talking about is the A number for F1 students on optional practical training, uh, that sort of thing. That's a unique series just for students. Uh, Other EAD cards issued for people who have a pending green card case, uh, that will have their official A number on it, and that's the A number they will have on their green card when they eventually get their green cards.
3: Okay, so a student, in other words, you're saying, could, who has an A number on their EAD card and ultimately gets a green card is going to get a different A number than appears on that card.
4: You, you got it. That's exactly right. Uh, don't ask me the, the logic of the government, but then again, it's your tax dollars at work, you know.
3: So for the EAD, the person who's presenting an EAD, they, let me just be clear, they do not have to fill in that A number then?
4: They, they should.
3: They should, Okay.
4: It is an A number. Uh, I mean, it asks for an A number. They should fill it in. Uh, the government, the government will know if it's one of the 135 million A numbers. They know it's it's for an F1 student on optional practical training.
3: Okay. I'm I'm sorry. I don't mean to beat this to death. But if somebody presents their fills it out, does not include that, presents the EAD card at that time, I can request that they they uh, include that number.
4: Well, uh, I believe in. Uh, let me look at the form here. I believe when you when uh, an EAD card is a List A document, right? Right. Yeah. All right. And um, you are you are required to put the document title that would be EAD, issuing right. Authority USCIS uh, and document number. Uh, well, them. there's there's really no document number. On, well, there actually are two document numbers on an EAD card for an F1 student now. One is the, the service center receipt number. the, yeah. other, the other is the, the employee the person's uh, 135 million a number. Uh, personally, I would put the 135 million a number or, or just put both. Just
3: Okay, so there. I guess I, what I've always done is, is use the receipt number that you're talking about the, like the service center number. but I don't see that they filled out an A number. Do I, do I have the right to ask them to put it in section 1?
4: Uh, wait, wait one second. Um, okay, that would be the fourth box in section one. An alien authorized to work, uh, alien number or admission number. Um, you can. I, I don't have any problem with you asking them to put it in there if if they uh, if they check that box. Okay. That's just, that's just asking them to complete the uh, to complete the item. Uh, there's no discrimination there.
3: Okay. Thank you.
2: All right. Well, I think all we're going to conclude the call. It's been terrific. I hope you have found it very useful and very informative. Uh, We are available for any additional consultation offline. We're available to help you set up an employer program, a compliance program. We do off-site, on-site audits, teaching and training on this issue. So please remember that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Check out our website and check out what we have coming next month. We'll let you know. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you. Thank you all.
2: Bye. Bye. I'm here. Francesca?
3: Yes.